This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Last week, we spoke to Dean Kuypers about his memoir of place, people, and the human-nature relationship in a story about restoring a piece of land and restoring his own family at the same time. This week, we're joined by another cultivator of place, whose nature-based memoir, Late Migrations, A Natural History of Love and Loss, reminds us all of the timelessness of life cycles, and that while our gardens and gardening impulses may not be enough to repair everything, they are a very powerful and meaningful something in the right direction. Margaret Rankel is a gardener, a constant student of natural history, and a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, where her pieces appear weekly. She lives in Nashville, Tennessee, and joins us today to share more about her work and her relationship to the natural world, often seen through the lens of her own, quote, ordinary backyard. She speaks with us from her home and backyard garden. Welcome, Margaret. Thanks so much for having me. I want to have you start off with a a short reading, and it's from relatively early in the book, in a chapter entitled, Not Always in the Sky. This is the second half of this short chapter, and it kind of sets the tone for where your garden sits in the order of things in your life to some extent. Working at my desk one day, I hear a great mob of blue jays sounding the alarm. A predator is in their midst. Minutes pass and their rage shows no signs of dissipating, so I step outside. Perhaps the hawk that looks like an eagle has landed in my own yard. But I see nothing in the sky, nothing in the trees, nothing on the utility pole at the corner of the yard, nothing on the power lines. And then I notice that the blue jays are looking down as they scream out their jeering cry of warning, and that all the smaller birds, even the ground foragers, have taken to the bushes and the honeysuckle tangles and are looking downward too. The little cooper's hawk who hunts in this yard will often stand on his prey for a bit, working to get a better grip on his struggling victim before taking to the sky. But there is no hawk on the ground either. Walking farther into the yard, I still don't see anything, even scanning the ground with a zoom lens. And then it dawns on me that the birds must be looking at a snake. This lot backs up to a city easement, only a few yards wide, that leads from the wooded area behind our neighbor's house out to the side street next to ours. We leave the easement untended and the part of our yard that abuts it as well because it serves as a kind of wildlife corridor. A very large rat snake, at least five feet long, hunts under our house and all over this yard, but I wouldn't be able to see it in the easement unless I was practically upon it. I walk a little closer, but only a little. Though I am not especially afraid of snakes, I know they are afraid of me, and I like to give them their room. Holding a useless camera, I suddenly realize that something extraordinary is happening right before me. A great serpent slowly on the move, 
and all the songbirds aware of its presence and calling to each other and telling each other to beware. The miracle isn't happening in the sky at all. It's happening in the damp weeds of an ordinary backyard, among last year's moldering leaves and the fragrant soil turned up by moles. Mm. Thank you very much for reading that. It really set the tone for me in this book and my reading of it for where your yard and your garden and the life in it sits in this sort of beautiful balance between miraculous and ordinary for for you and I think for for many gardeners. So you are a writer, you are a gardener, you are uh, someone who is in constant observation and communication with this life going on in your yard. Tell us a little bit about what your relationship to your garden space, no matter what that looks like uh, with the word garden attached to it, uh, <laughs> what what is your relationship to to plants and the companion animals that come with them at this time in your life, Margaret? Oh, that's a complicated question because <laughs> this is this time of my life is is still fairly new to me. My youngest child left for college two years ago. We have one surviving parent. My husband and I have one surviving parent between us. But the time to spend in the yard was really taken up by work and raising a family for so many years that the ability to look outward again still feels fairly new to me. But this house itself, we've lived in this house for 24 years. The yard is probably less than impressive to an outside observer. It's half an acre. And I think garden might be an ambitious word for what I do because I don't plant for people. I plant for the natural world just because I like my wildlife neighbors. So the flowers I plant are not designed really to please the human eye, but to be of use to pollinators. And the greenery that I've introduced into the yard over the years is really set to provide food for migratory birds. So I don't think of it really so much as a garden. I think of it more as a habitat, I guess, mm -hmm. which even that word sounds grand to me because it's, it's a fancy way of saying I let a lot of my yard go wild. Yeah. The correlation between this relationship you have with your place and, and how you participate in that place, uh, which I very definitely see as gardening, but I also completely understand your reticence to take on that mantle because it comes with so much baggage in many cases for what people are expecting to see or do or see you do there. This relationship you have is beautifully interwoven through little vignettes, sometimes half a page, sometimes two, two and a half pages long. Uh, they are interwoven with a parallel 
thread of you exploring your family history over time and you exploring concepts of love and loss and grief and rebirth. Um, And these three strong threads are what create late migrations. The book uh, that that you have recently published. Its subtitle is A Natural History of Love and Loss. And before we get deep into how you wrote it and, and how it ended up coming together and and why you wrote it, I would love to have you take us back to what where gardening as a as a legacy sort of sits in the order of your life so that we we create this context of why this would be a long um, and an equal sort of storyline to interweave throughout the book. Who, who were your earliest people and plants and places that made you into a person that would value this thread so highly, Margaret? I grew up in lower Alabama. That's the capital L when you live in Alabama. It's a region of the state that encompasses the landscape just before you get to the coast, the way the landscape changes when you're near the Gulf of Mexico. So it's very flat. It's very, very hot. The soil is often just dark red sand and dry. And that is where my people come from. My parents lived in a little house in town. My grandparents lived in a bigger house out in the country. And I think that the little house must have been, it was a a really early style ranch house. And I think it must have just been a neighborhood that had been sort of scraped and started fresh. Because the only thing really growing there were pine trees. And my grandparents' house was a farmhouse. So for my early my early years were really spent in a very specific landscape but it was also a a pretty specific time because in those days the early 1960s lower alabama was very hot and there was no air conditioning well some people had air conditioning we did not have air conditioning and so the natural world was really where you spent your time as much as you could because the house was stifling. Windows were open, doors were open to the screen doors. And so what happened in the world outside the house and what happened in the home were uh, deeply, deeply connected. I think that was partly just the time and partly the place. But I also think probably it was the nature of my family because my grandfather uh, he actually um, he actually came from a family of doctors. His father was a doctor. Both of his brothers grew up to be doctors. But my grandfather wanted only to be a farmer, always. That was his lifelong dream, always. And my grandmother was a school teacher, and, uh, and she kept a perennial border, just like everybody in the little farming community, all of the women in, in that place had a perennial border. It, they were all the same flowers because they were all pass-along plants. They were irises that could be, the tubers could be divided or, or bulbs or um, cuttings that could be rooted and shared. And I actually 
have in my own yard uh, a rambling rose that my great-grandfather bought in 1909, and it's very easy to root a rambling rose. You just put a cane down on a pot full of dirt and put a brick on top of the cane, and it'll send down roots. And after a few weeks, you can cut the cane free from the main the, from the main rows and and take it and plant it anywhere you want. And so everybody everybody in that little farming community had that same Dr. Van Fleet rose, which is exquisite. And my mother took it to you know her house when she married, and everybody has it. My brother has one. My sister has one. So that that idea of the 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 world of the human beings as being sort of intertwined with the world of, of nature it imprinted on me very strongly. The, the part about the actual perennial border was less important to me, although my brother was very um, entranced with it and has the most exquisite perennial border you've ever seen, probably. People drive by his house to look at it in the springtime, and many of the plants in his flower beds came from our mother and, and in turn from our grandparents. Yeah. And there is this sense, which you have uh, definitely hinted at in that description you just gave us of you having a strong awareness of, at least now in hindsight, a strong awareness of, of where you lived and what that looked like, what characterized the soil, what characterized the trees, what characterized the climate. And that awareness is really in some sharp contrast to, I think, where many people, at least today, are now in terms of their awareness of, of where they live in the greater context of topography, geography, geology, watershed. And there is this, um, I think there's an importance there about that permeability you were describing early in your life where windows are open and doors are open and people live outside and the outside lives inside because of sheer circumstance that there wasn't air conditioning. And that full immersion with the the natural world around us was much more prevalent then and it is far less prevalent now and it is a kind of separation and dislocation that in some parts of the book it feels like this book is an an elegy for that time and that availability of integration with the world around us. Margaret Rankle is a gardener, a constant student of natural history, and a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. She's speaking with us today about her first book, Late Migrations, A Natural History of Love and Loss. Stay with us. Here was a theme that I loved hearing Margaret describe in its garden form, the generosity of plants and the generosity of plants people, made manifest in the pass-along plants filling out her mother's garden, and indeed all of the gardens of her mother's and grandmother's communities. How easy it is to root a cutting of a rambling rose and share it forward in time and space, horizontally through our communities 
and vertically down into our next generations. As we close in on the end of September and the close of the third quarter of the year, I want to thank all of you who have contributed financially to the success of Cultivating Place. We started the online donation platform to help support the production of the program just one year ago. And each and every dollar contributed has been a pass-along plant and a rooted cutting of its own kind, generously growing this work making the work of North State Public Radio possible, making the elevation of how we talk about, think about, and value gardening and gardeners possible. There are close to 20,000 of you listening to the podcast, and a small but healthy handful of you are monthly sustaining donors. Thank you. To know that these expansive conversations on what it means to be a gardener, on the responsibility and honor of cultivating our places, on what we as gardeners look like and care about, fills an appetite in you, well, this fills me. Donations directly support the people and resources needed to research, record, edit, engineer, produce, and air a quality program on a weekly and annual basis. And so thank you. If you'd like to become a one-time donor or monthly sustainer for Cultivating Place, go to the top right-hand corner of any page at cultivatingplace.com and hit the support button for more information on how. We simply could not pass along the plants that are the Cultivating Place conversations without the roots you help us to establish. Please consider an end-of-quarter donation today. Now, back to our conversation with Margaret Rankle, whose newest book, Late Migrations, illustrates so clearly the interdependence we all have on one another, gardens to wildlife, humans to nature, love and loss to life. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now with writer and gardener Margaret Rankle. When we left off in the conversation, Margaret had shared her gardening background. As we come back, Margaret is sharing how, after her undergraduate work at Auburn University in Alabama, she accepted a graduate school position at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. It was a disaster. She was unhappy. She had never lived in a city, let alone one with an unrelenting winter, and she felt like she was choking on city fumes, like she had lost sight of who she was and her very outlines were fading. She returned home after just one semester. As we come back, Margaret shares with us how she found her way forward. The spring after my disastrous semester at at Penn, I still thought I was going to be going back to school in the fall, but I stopped to say hello to a, an old professor of mine who lived in a house right in the little corner where the experimental ag fields and the experimental forest uh, came together at Auburn. And I sat on his front porch and described my deep unhappiness. And he said, don't go back. Go to South Carolina with Billy because Billy had already been admitted to the graduate program in fine art at the University of South Carolina. And I said, well, 
why would I do that? I don't think I, it makes sense to follow my baby brother to college, to grad school. And he said, well, James Dickey is there. And James Dickey was a poet whose work I really loved. And so I thought, well, maybe that's maybe that would work out. It seemed awfully late uh, June to be applying to graduate school. But but I don't remember exactly how, but it all worked out somehow. And I ended up at the University of South Carolina working on a master's degree in creative writing while my brother worked on a master's degree in fine art. So you go and finish your graduate degree in creative writing and you become a a writer full time after that, as well as raising your three sons? Not quite in that order. I was studying poetry, and I did continue to write poetry for 14 or 15 years after that. But I was teaching my job. My my day job was teaching high school English. I switched from poetry to creative nonfiction when I was pregnant with the baby that would be my second child. I had two really devastating miscarriages between my first baby and this one. And when I was 22 weeks pregnant, I was put on bed rest. I was in full preterm labor, two centimeters dilated and not expecting that baby to live either. So um, my doctor put me on some medication to stop the contractions and, and made me lie flat on my back. And I couldn't keep teaching. I couldn't finish out the school year. And I needed to find some way to make a living from flat on my back, and I started writing essays. And by the time the baby was safely born, I had made some contacts at some national magazines and um, could see that it was a that it was a viable path for for earning a living and still having uh, a lot more flexibility at home with a baby and a and a preschooler. And that's when I really started writing full-time. That that period of time lasted for probably, let's say, about 12 years. And then I I, I took a job as a, an editor. And three weeks after I started working full-time as an editor, I realized that my mother could no longer live safely alone. And she was in Birmingham. I was in Nashville. And it was, you, you talk about the universe pointing you in the direction you need to go, the rental house across the street from our house became available right when it was clear that something needed to be done. And and mom agreed to move to Nashville and she moved into the house across the street and it was kind of a, a good compromise. She wasn't ready to be cared for, but she needed more help than I could give from long distance. And my sister could give, even though she was nearby, she had really young children. And um, so that it, that really, it kind of worked out. But what happened was that the, the sudden onset of elder care with the sudden onset of a very, very demanding job with no flexibility at all um, meant that I more or less stopped writing for about five years. I didn't do any writing of my own at all. So this brings up quite a few of the themes um, in the book, Late Migrations. And it 
ties into some of what you write about quite regularly for the New York Times, but it pulls together this concept of you as a a gardener student of natural history, you as a poet, you as a human mother and caretaker for your parents and your in-laws. And it almost strikes me being of a similar age and at a similar time in life as that sort of next coming of age story, not coming of age when you're a young adult, but coming of age in this middle section between bearing children and between losing our our parents. And that in-between state is quite a poignant one for those of us who are in it. And um, you you offset these storylines, all three of these storylines, with the lessons that you're learning in in the garden and at work in the natural world. So let's move into late migrations and how first of all maybe why why you wrote it now and what what called you to bring it together now and how you ultimately determined to to structure it and put it together, whether that was in collaboration with an editor or that was a structure that you knew you wanted from the outset? Well, I will say that I didn't think for a long time I was writing a book. I I didn't have any idea that this that what I was writing might turn into a book. My mother died very suddenly. My grandmother lived to be 97. My great-grandmother lived to be 96. My mother, when she died, was 80. We thought we had a decade or more still with her. So even though she was 80, it was just a profound shock to me when she died of a cerebral hemorrhage. And uh, I think the shock of grief, for me, uh, grief that comes suddenly works very differently than grief that comes over after a long illness as it had with my father. And, and so I think I was really, truly reeling. And, and then my parents-in-law moved to Nashville after when my father-in-law needed uh, help recovering from open heart surgery. And my mother-in-law was very far advanced in Parkinson's disease. My father-in-law had been her caregiver and all of a sudden he needed help. He needed help with her and, uh, it was a lot. <laughs> it was just so much uh, to try to fathom and and work through. And I I wasn't doing a very good job of it. And another writer said to me, "Would you ever want to write about that?" And I thought honestly that he meant. Wouldn't it make sense, more sense to you, if you could write about it? Uh, as it turns out, he, he wasn't speaking quite so uh, emotionally or metaphorically. He's, he, his day job, he's a, his name is Clay Risen. He's a, an author um, himself, but he, his day job is uh, he serves as the deputy editor of the op-ed section of the New York Times. And, and the Times 
was about to start a new series called The End, about end-of-life issues. And so he was asking me this in the sense of, well, if you ever did want to write about it, uh, there's an editor here who might want to see it, um, what you wrote. But that isn't how I took it initially. I took it as a an invitation to return to really who I am after five years of being an editor to go back to being a writer, even a little bit at a time, even just 15 minutes a day. And that's how I initially approached the project. I was writing about my grief and my despair. And, and as those stories, as, as those essays, they're, they're very brief, of you, as you mentioned, they're essays by a really generous definition. Some of them are barely more than a paragraph long. But that's what I was, that was the circumstances in which I began writing the book. Um, my mother-in-law did pass away not long after I started writing these essays. The very first essay I wrote did end up running in the New York Times. And that combination of things made me think that maybe other people might welcome the chance to articulate or to explore the feelings of end of life. I think in our culture, we're not good at talking about it. We hear that someone's going through a hard time or has had some kind of devastating setback and and our and our natural reaction is to say oh but at least right <laughs> and, 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 you know like at least yeah. you still have your children at least um you have you're in a city with the best doctors or whatever we go straight from calamity to accommodation without any opportunity or to to slow down and explore the actual calamity itself and the way we're responding to it so that I, I just planted a little seed in my mind. It wasn't I wasn't saying to myself, "Oh, there's a market for this." It wasn't anything like that. It was more like, "Well, maybe this might open the conversation." And so I so I started writing those grief uh, meditations, and the more I thought about those feelings, the more I felt myself going deeper and deeper into memory. The when you grieve someone, the natural thing is to want to e- e- explain to somebody why they were so wonderful, why their loss is so sad for you. And that impulse led me to think of some of these childhood memories you referenced earlier. At the same time that I was writing these essays, the 2015, my mother-in-law died in December of 2014. Then 2015, when the primary season started gearing up for the 2016 election, all of a sudden, the anger and the vitriol and the ugliness that I had missed, either because I had been deep in the role of caregiving or because I had been hopelessly naive or... or um, protected by white privilege or all of those things, I was grieving my country at the same time that I was grieving the loss of my mother and my mother-in-law, whom I loved with all my heart. And 
I started, I thought to myself, I'm just going to, I need some respite from the world. I'm just going to make myself write a little essay every week about something that happens in my yard. And it'll just be a reminder of the timelessness of the natural cycles. And it wasn't very long into writing those two different threads that it dawned on me that really I was writing the same. They belong together. That they were both um, meditations on loss in a way. But that also in the process of paying much closer attention to the birds and the and the creatures and the flowers and the trees of my yard, I was seeing the way toward comfort in all of these other things as well. The loss of my parents and my mother-in-law and the deep grief over what was happening to my country. Um, it was all, they all belonged to the same impulse. All of the essays in a way are about kinship, about the way we are, that we belong to each other and to the natural world. And so once I could see that, it became a little clearer to me that this might be a bigger project. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Margaret Rankel is a gardener, a constant student of natural history, and a contributing opinion writer for The New York Times. She's speaking with us today about her first book, Late Migrations. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. So this week, I'm thinking out loud about the positive feedback loop that is our lives, especially as shown to us so brilliantly and imperfectly perfectly every day we pay attention in our gardens. How, as Margaret says in our conversation, it's not just that everything dies and is eaten, but that everything that's eaten goes to feeding the next generation. My plant and nature-loving people, this is an open-ended question we ask ourselves every day. How are we contributing positively to the feeding of the next generation? In the soil for the trees and flowers and plants next year. In our communities, so that the places we live and people and lives we live among are fed for their next round of healthy growth. And for our own literal next generations of people, plants, and places. What are we feeding them? What do we want to be nurturing and supporting and cultivating that will feed them well? Are the decisions we make every day making us the gardening ancestors we want to be? Margaret Rankle ends her book at the very end of the last page in the acknowledgments with this, quote, If there's anything that living in a family has taught me, it's that we belong to one another, outward and outward and outward in ripples that extend in either direction. We belong to one another and also to this green and gorgeous world, end quote. A few pages before this, she cites a favorite quote from the poet Derek Walcott, quote, so much to do still, and all of it praise, end quote. Now, back to our conversation with writer, gardener, family member, Margaret Rinkle. This is Cultivating Place, 
Conversations on Natural History and the Human Impulse to Garden. We're back now to our conversation with Margaret Rankle, New York Times writer and avid wildlife nurturing gardener. When we left off, Margaret was sharing how she came to start writing small meditations and reflections on life caring for her elders as they aged, and writing another series on the life in her backyard. As we come back, she's sharing how the two series became one. Welcome back. As far as the structure of the book itself, I had a different structure in mind for it. I I did not think of it as a narrative initially. I thought of it as paired essays. I would have an essay about something that happened in the human world and an essay that about something that happened in the natural world, and I would put them side by side, and they would kind of talk to each other just by proximity. But when I signed the contract with Milkweed Editions, my publisher, my really brilliant editor, Joey McGarvey, said, it might, you might try putting the family essays in chronological order and then see where the nature essays belong from there. And once I tried that structure, I could see the narrative becoming much clearer, and I could see where the holes in the narrative were and where I needed to write new essays to fill those holes. And when I wrote the new essays, because I was farther along in this process, I could kind of see how the natural world essays echoed those themes and those threads much more clearly. And it's it's a really beautiful cumulative effect of these sort of prose poems all weaving together to create, in the end, a, a memoir of your life, a wonderful meditation on the perspective allowed to us when we can see beyond our own hands, kind of, and mm-hmm. see the bigger world. And... These themes of um, there's a there are two quotes early in the book, um, right off the bat, really um, one that says the cycle of life might as well be called the cycle of death. Everything that lives will die, and everything that dies will be eaten. And right here we get into um, this idea of an order of things in in the world and these cycles of life. But it it doesn't end sort of from my reading, it doesn't end with you saying everything is going to die. It basically says it's a cycle of life and death and life again in the being eaten and the nourishing the next the next round of life and death and eating and life and death and eating. And then you say the shadow side of love is always loss and grief is only love's own twin. And to see these mirrored in your family stories, as well as in the stories of you and your learning and observing and loving your your yard and garden and the life in it, uh, is is a powerful cumulative effect. Thank you. That that's that's what I hoped when I was putting the essays together, but. It's never clear, I don't think, to a writer whether what she hopes is what the reader's going to read. Right. And there are 
there are big themes that that go through here. One of them being the like making sense of things and trying to put things in an order, whether that's you know the order of the planets in the sky and the universe, or it's the taxonomy of plants and animals, or it's why did your mom die when she did, and and why you did or didn't do what you did. Um, in how you raised your kids or how you cared for your family or or all of these, you know, universal human questions. And, you know, when you look back over the way the garden held your grief, communicated some of this perspective, was your companion through all of this, talk about the importance of that for you, maybe throughout this process of writing and then you know, even today. I guess when I say the garden too, let me let me articulate that even more because when I say the word garden, I mean that, you know, that wild green space that is the 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 easement between you and the back lot. I mean, you know, the piney woods that you grew up in and you call yourself a a child of. I, I mean all of the natural world. One thing that happened I think about a lot these days. One thing that happened when my youngest child was six weeks old, we went to my husband's family reunion. My husband's one of six children. And uh, that that year that my youngest was just a teeny tiny baby, one of my sisters-in-law arrived with a new haircut. She had, she had bangs and I, and I was sleep deprived and exhausted and no one should ever do this. But I thought I should have bangs. I think maybe I would feel better if I had bangs. So I took, when my, I took my mother-in-law's sewing shears off her sewing machine table and I took it into the bathroom and I gave myself bangs. And of course they were terribly uneven and I trimmed a little more on one side. And then I tried to trim a little more on the other side because you're looking at the mirror image. Um, I just completely made a wreck of things. And I finally just gave up and took the sewing shears back. And she looked at me and she said, and this is the, exactly the kind of mother-in-law I had. She said, oh, it makes so much sense for a young mom to have bangs. And I said, why? And she said, because when you have small children, you're always looking down. And I thought, I think about that all the time now that my children are grown because I really do feel that now I'm looking out much more than I did during the years when I had small children and and a sick father and a lonely mother. And um, it doesn't take much looking out, I don't think, to begin to understand those cycles that you mentioned. It's not that everything that dies is eaten, or not only that. It's that everything that's eaten feeds the next generation. And and that is a very reassuring thing to me as I'm burying my loved ones, moving toward old age myself. It's very reassuring. And so quite naturally, I found myself working harder to make those cycles more obvious and more nourishing in my own yard. The The yard was wild, uh, and mainly out of neglect for a long time. It was just that I was working and I had 
children and elders to care for. But those that wildness is something you can work with if you're paying attention. And so you see the, the, the way the goldfinches ride the coneflowers in the fall. Uh, and you think, well, I'm going to plant more coneflowers next year. Look how the goldfinches love them. And you see how the zinnias are the only thing still blooming when the monarch migration is underway and comes through Tennessee. You think, I'm going to plant more zinnias. It's just a natural uh, impulse, I think, to want to help. We, we, we encounter a calamity of any kind, human or natural. And people, by and large, people feel moved to help. If, if there's a death in the family here in Tennessee, just as it was in in my home in Alabama, people bring casseroles. They bring, you know, breakfast breads, muffins, and and good coffee beans. It's it's just our natural impulse. And so I think one of the one of the things I try to do with my column in the Times and 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 tried to do in part with this book is to emphasize that ki- that kinship, because when people feel connected. They don't feel powerless. They feel empowered to to do what they can. Um, often it's just a matter of, of saying, here's something you can do. Plant more trees. Plant more coneflowers. Plant more zinnias. It's not hard. It's not enough, but it's also not nothing. So you you mentioned earlier that your younger brother, Billy, created the artwork that fills the book, and they are original um, plates uh, that are are wonderful collages of, of shapes and content and words, and they have their own whole narratives that pair with your words. Will you tell us a little bit about that process, working with Billy and Billy working with his art to complement your, your book, Margaret? It was really important to me from the very beginning to have Billy involved in in the, the this project. Once I understood that it was a book, I just remembered how many projects we had worked on together. The little gifts we had given our parents where I wrote the words and Billy wrote the, drew the pictures to go with it, the little books we made in childhood, the school publications we worked on together. It, it was just really important to me that this, that my words could be in conversation with his images, if that was at all possible. It's not, um, it wasn't a, it wasn't, I wasn't sure it would work out, but I hoped it would work out. And fortunately, my, the folks at Milkweed Editions were, um, were entranced with that idea. And they asked Billy how he would feel about creating a set of works just for the book. And and he came up with what I thought was a really brilliant idea. His idea was not to illustrate any of the family stories, but to choose only the nature essays to do, uh, to, to make, to make works about, but he put each of those nature pieces in a frame that he, he got from eBay, I think. He ordered a bunch of 
of antique photo almost they're not frames they're more like little cardboard mats that mm-hmm. people would put in uh, in a photo frame or in a family album and it was his way i think to emphasize the connectedness of the family essays and the nature essays because the, the there would be a piece about a bluebird or a piece about a rabbit or a piece about a butterfly and but it would be enclosed in an antique photo frame that made it look like it belonged in family history and i just loved that approach and i think it's it's really it's really a, a it makes the book it's as adults we we see illustrated books and it automatically i think takes us back to the mindset of reading as a child when it was just expected that there would be pictures with the story and this book has pictures with the story and i hope it gives adult readers that same warm sense of being read to as a child or of reading a storybook as a child that this is a time when it's just comforting and reassuring to know that everything is in its place. And I think Billy's artwork does that as much or more than my words do. And they pair with your words so beautifully. And in fact, it was in one of the illustrations that is sort of a constellations and some astronomy charts that he that he was working with that I thought the order of things is a primary theme in this book and and I scrawled that in the margins after seeing <laughs> his illustration what happened to the original illustrations all the cover illustration is a tracing of a silhouette that a street, an Alabama street artist made of me when I was eight years old. Billy traced it and then filled it in with his own uh, collage. That work is hanging in my bedroom. <laughs> the <laughs> others, uh, the other original artworks were put on display at Parnassus Books. My hometown bookshop here in Nashville, um, and they were for sale at the book launch as original works of art. I'd love to have you end. There, there are so many other parts of the book I would, I would love to dive into when you, when you plant the milkweed for the monarch larva, when you and your son discover the, the rabbit nest and cover it back up and don't cut back that part of the garden in order to protect the bunnies. Um, just all, all of the, the life stories you share. But I'd love to have us end by having you read uh, a little bit from towards the end of the book. And it is a, a small meditation entitled Carapace, which of course is the uh, kind of exoskeleton of um, a creature. Sure. Carapace, hush, be quiet. The long summer day is coming to a close, spooling up its lovely light. But there is nothing to fear from the night. There is nothing to fear from life giving way to death, for that matter, or from any dark thing. Stand in the shadows under the trees for only a moment, for half a moment. 
and a dozen fallen things will reveal themselves to you. Last year's sassafras leaf, clinging still to a bit of its yellow luster, has gone gorgeous in lace, and the cicada, dwelling in the black soil for all those years, has climbed out of its shell and taken to the trees and begun to sing, has become the song of summer evenings, and the sweet gum ball has lost its spiky armor and released its seeds into the generations, and the acorn, too, has shed its shell and set roots into the earth, and the dead sycamore at the edge of the quiet lakes like lapping water has leapt into flame as it does every single evening. And then the red-winged blackbird, the bright badge on his wing a flare of incandescence in the light at the end of the day, settles on a branch and sings the nighttime home. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today, Margaret. It has been a pleasure to read your book and a pleasure to talk about it a little bit more with you. Thank you so much for having me, Jennifer. I I had a wonderful time talking with you. Margaret Rangel is a gardener, a constant student of natural history, and a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, where her pieces appear weekly. She lives in Nashville, Tennessee, and she joined us today to share more about her work and her relationship to the natural world, often seen through the lens of her very ordinary backyard. Join us again next week when we move to a different seat and consider our spaces, how we see them, who sees them, how we value them, from the inside and the out, through the eyes and perspectives of architect David Abelow. There are so many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. At cultivatingplace.com this week, I think you're going to really love exploring some of the richly composed collage illustrations that Margaret's artist brother, Billy, created for the book Late Migrations. They are layered and lovely and thought-provoking. This is the last week in the third quarter of this year, so I want to throw something out there to you all. I need you to make this work possible. To make Cultivating Place as sustainable as the gardens we value. If you've never donated in support before, please consider making a tax-deductible donation, large or small, one time or as a monthly recurring donation to help us reach our goals. It's in Cultivating Our Places, including this program that is a part of your place, that we grow a better world. To all of you who are generous donors and monthly sustaining supporters already, thank you. We literally could not do this without you. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Executive producer is Sarah Bohannon. The original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX. Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.